This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Welcome to the last of the guest speakers. <laughs> I'm sure we're looking forward to next week when this part of the service will be returned to true professionals. I suspect I was picked for this slot for two reasons. First, it's 4th of July week, so lots of folks are out of town. And since Brett will preach his first sermon next week, I expect a lot of folks decided that, given the option, this would be the better week to be somewhere else. So thanks for being here today. Now, those of you who have heard me before may know how I go about this. I start out like the real professionals. I check out the lectionary for that Sunday and see if anything jumps out as inspiration. Usually when that happens, it connects to lyrics from a rock and roll song. To it, one of the scriptures today is Psalm 30. Here it seems the psalmist was somehow stripped of all the joy in his life. But at the end, he gives thanks and praise to the Lord when his joyfulness is restored. Hmm. Ah. Don't let nobody rob you of your joy. That's a great song, despite the double negative. So, hey, I had a concept. Now, my usual plan of action from there is to cheat a little bit and get some help from some real heavyweights. Last time it was Leo Tolstoy. He's a hard act to follow. So I've recruited four folks to help me this time. So we'll start by playing a round of name that wise guy. So we have the first slide here. Okay. Who is that? Shout it out. Okay. That's an easy one. Next one. A good friend of his. Desmond Tutu. All right. Now, this third one, bring him up. He's very well known in church and literary circles, but not as photographed. Well-known Christian author. Yes, yes. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Got that one. Now's the tough one. And Graham Lewis, you're out until I call on you. Next one. Okay. Now, our final wise guy shares a common trait with the others. He is hair-challenged. Perhaps, perhaps wisdom is inversely proportional to hair growth, which means, of course, Lee Madsen is far wiser than I. Uh, so anybody know this person other than Graham? Okay, a few clues. He's a son of a Pentecostal preacher. Before taking up a music career, he was a professional boxer. He once fought Roberto Duran and lasted six rounds before the doctor stepped in to literally stop the bleeding. In addition to Don't Let Nobody Rob You of Your Joy, his other songs include Old Stray Dogs and Jesus, Temporarily Forever Mine, and I Don't Like Half the Folks I Love. <laughs> so wise guy number four is... Graham? I got too much hair to remember. Ah, it's Paul Thorne from Tupelo, Mississippi. Yeah. 
Um, so, and the also Elvis's home, but he he left early. Okay, uh, it's from the song's from this album, which uh, I like the title of that too, and I'm not sure if that's his piano, but I certainly like the inscription on it. So our topic today is joy, what it is, how we can have it taken away, and how we can hold on to it or get it back. To start, we must ask, what is true joy? And how does it differ from happiness or pleasure? And as we delve further into this topic, I will lean heavily on excerpts from this remarkable book, The Book of Joy, uh, based on conversations between two of the spiritual giants of our time. They embody the undeniable truth that it doesn't matter which path you take up the mountain. If it is a true path, not all are, but if it's a true path, it will lead to the summit. And when you get there, the view is pretty much the same. Now, maybe one way to approach the question is, what is joy? Maybe one way to, to, to go about it is to ask, what isn't joy, and how don't you find it? And I'll start with a quote from Archbishop Tutu. It's part of a continuing conversation, and here he is responding to a comment by the Dalai Lama. It's very difficult to follow your profound pronouncement, Tutu says. I, I thought you were going to say that, in fact, when you are pursuing happiness, you are not going to find it. It's very, very elusive. You don't find it by saying, I'm going to forget about everything else and just pursue happiness. There's a little book by C.S. Lewis called Surprised by Joy, which I think explains how it works. Following Tutu's suggestion, we'll turn next to Lewis for his perspective. So from his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, we have this perplexing paragraph, which follows his descriptions of three experience of tra experiences of transcendent happiness. For those who are still disposed to proceed, I will only underline the quality common to the three experiences. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which here is a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in this sense, has indeed one characteristic, one only, in common with them. The fact that anybody who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anybody who has tasted it would ever, if it were in his power, exchange this joy for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Now, that's quite a mouthful, so we need to chew on it a bit. First, he calls joy an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Now, that seems contradictory, but in a way it makes sense. The feeling of joy is often coupled with a sense of yearning, of longing to be part of something more than ourselves, a feeling of connection yet of incompleteness. We feel drawn away into a communion with something more 
than our little selves. Whatever joy is, we know we cannot buy it. It is not something we can call up on demand. Joy is dependent and conditional. We may be able to do things that will open us up to joy when the moment arrives, but we cannot make joy happen of our own accord. We can unlatch the door to joy, but we can't make it knock. Also, Lewis here seems to say, at least implicitly, that joy is relational. We feel joy when we somehow move outside of our limited selves, let go of our egos and open to somebody or something, even if we don't fully comprehend exactly what it is. So the other peculiar thing about joy is that it seems to be preceded by difficulties, by trials, and even great suffering. It's hard to manage anybody more joyful today than, than this pair. I love this photo. It seems like, uh, like Archbishop Tutu is teaching the Dalai Lama how to do the Cape Town Boogaloo. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if you've ever seen vo videos of their joint appearances, they spend a great deal of time kidding each other and giggling like little school children. It's hard to imagine that they experienced the brutalities of apartheid in South Africa and the Chinese invasion of Tibet. A substantial amount of this book was contributed by the editor and compiler, Douglas Abrams, and he recounts a story that brings this point home. It concerns Ray Hinton, a black man who was falsely convicted of a crime he did not commit and spent 30 years on death row, much of it in solitary confinement, when he was finally released by a Supreme Court decision, many people were astounded by his lack of bitterness. When Abrams met him, Hinton told him, one does not know the value of freedom until one has it taken away. I run out into the rain. How can anything that falls from heaven not be precious? Having missed the rain for so many years, I'm grateful for every drop, just to feel it on my face. When Abrams asked him how he could respond with joy in such circumstances, Hinton replied, the world didn't give you your joy and the world can't take it away. You can let people come into your life and destroy it, but I refused to let anyone take my joy. I get up in the morning and I don't need anyone to make me laugh. I'm going to laugh on my own because I am blessed to see another day. And when you are blessed to see another day, that should automatically give you joy. Okay, so what about us? We didn't have the experience of 30 years in prison to give us this extraordinary perspective. What are we to do? Abrams, paraphrasing the perspective of the Dalai Lama, says this. So many of the causes of suffering come from our reacting to the people, places, things, and circumstances of our lives, rather than accepting them. When we react, we stay locked in judgment and criticism, anxiety and despair, even denial and addiction. It is impossible 
to experience joy when we are stuck in this way. So what resonates with me here is the way I often feel when reading the news, particularly opinion pieces and cruising through social media. What I'm finding all too often is an unending litany of judgment and criticism, of denigrating and demeaning those the writer disagrees with. Reading these articles and posts is not a joyful experience. In fact, it often robs me of my joy even when I happen to agree with the basic point of the writer. I suppose it's the inevitable byproduct of our hyperpolarized society these days. It seems it's getting harder and harder to find a way forward that is compassionate and hopeful, forgiving to all, even those you disagree with strongly on basic principles. So maybe we could look at it this way. Popular slogan these days is resist. Now certainly, if you find evil or injustice, you should resist it. But there are basically two modes of resistance which I distinguish by different lists of re's and different symbols. So this first list, alas, predominates today. And it asks us to repudiate, reject, rebuke, reproach, rebuff, resent, and even revile. But there is an alternative with another symbol. When we see injustice, we also can recreate, revive, renew, reconcile, restore, and even rejoice. In other words, instead of constantly tearing down and attacking the people and ideas you disagree with, you turn instead to supporting, strengthening, and uplifting the alternative. Might be worth a try. If you feel the constant attack mode of today's political discourse is robbing you of your joy, simply opt out and start a new dialogue in a more joyful direction. If that feels right, where do you start? Well, from the five days of dialogues between the Dalai Lama and the Archbishop Tutu, Abrams derived a list of what he describes as eight pillars of joy. Four are qualities of the mind. Perspective, humility, humor, and acceptance. And four are qualities of the heart. Forgiveness, gratitude, compassion, and generosity. Now, obviously, we could devote a whole sermon to each of these points, which are not really that separate, but are more interwoven into a, into a way of life that opens you to be surprised by joy. At one point, Douglas Abrams asked Archbishop Tutu to summarize what he saw as the key to a joyful existence. The Archbishop considered his response carefully, then said, I mean simply to say that ultimately our greatest joy is when we seek to do good for others. It's how we are made. I mean, we are wired to be compassionate. And on the final day of Archbishop Tutu's visit to the Dalai Lama's residence in exile, the two Nobel laureates spent an afternoon at the Tibetan children's village. And here, 
the archbishop elaborated on the way to joy. If we think we want joy for ourselves, we realize it's very short-sighted and short-lived. Joy is the reward, really, of seeking to give joy to others. When you show compassion, when you show caring and love to others, in a wonderful way, you have a deep joy that you can get no other way. You can't buy it with money. You can be the richest person on earth, but if you only care about yourself, you will not be joyful. So you might say, to turn around the old football phrase, in this case, the best defense is a good offense. If you don't want nobody to rob you of your joy, then you need to reinforce and strengthen your joy-making potential. When you feel those TV, computer, and phone screens starting to sap you of the basic blessedness of life, maybe it's time to reinforce your own pillars of joy. Doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to wait until you can upset the power structure of institutions, as important as that may be. You don't have to convince masses of people out there in cyberspace to recant for their errors Although, if you're attempting to do this on social media, you're largely preaching to your own choir anyway. No, to reclaim your joy, you can start with a few little things. Our former pugilist has a musical suggestion. And first, a warning, the following content contains rock and roll, though not too loud and edited for length. Yes. Yeah. 
So, uh, with those words from uh, Paul Thorne, we'll uh, move towards our closing. Uh, maybe that's the answer, or at least one answer, to how we can reclaim our joy in these times of polarized strife. Maybe if we can latch on to a sense of gratitude as expressed by the psalmist. Maybe if we can resist the temptation to give into self-righteous indignation and instead build positive alternatives. Maybe with, with just a small gesture that lifts up somebody in need. Maybe then we can reclaim the joy that is our God-given birthright. So finally, in closing, I'd like to have you join me in a litany. It's based on a work that might be familiar to many of you. I will speak the lines of the leader, and we will all join in for the all. So, next slide. So, again, all is everybody, and then I'll speak the leader. So we'll start it off. One, two, three. Joy, Joy to the world, the whole world, all nations, all peoples, all the boys and girls, all of them, no exceptions. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea and all of God's creation entrusted to our care. Joy to you and me. May the peace and joy of Christ be with us all.